<laughs> I needed like 16,000 just to secure it. And I'm like, where do I have 16,000? And somebody literally called me from California and said, I want to give you the $16,000 check for the house. I'm like, awesome. And we're getting it. <laughs> so it's just been one miracle after another. Um, so I do want to take our tithes and offerings with the understanding that we're not doing God a favor. It's a blessing for us to be able to say, God, everything I have is yours. I don't want to live according to my own understanding or even my own means. And just so you guys know, we're not in a position of saying tithes and offerings because we need it. Daryl and I are fully financed from outside sources. Lou Engel actually is one of the people that supports us to do the work of the ministry. Um, so we as a ministry, we have a heart to see orphans taken in. We have a heart to feed the hungry. We have a heart to go to the nations of the earth. So we want to sow seeds so that we're able to advance the kingdom here and beyond in the nations. Um, and here's what we'll just do. We'll just start here. We'll just pass, pass it. it around. And, uh, and while we're passing it, you know, I just mentioned about Lou, um, just the <coughs> ridiculously incredible support he has been to Daryl and I that we wouldn't even be doing doing without him. Um, I do want us just to take a minute while we're collecting tithes and offerings. For those of you that don't know, Lou is actually in Detroit. He's been there for almost 40 days now, praying and fasting because they have a call coming up on 11-11. And for those of you that don't know, on September 25th, just six weeks ago, um, he was here and launched our first Sunday um, for us and with us because he really is the covering to this ministry to us and our father but i want us just to take a second just um, as a corporate group to pray for him um, his time in detroit and the gathering it's a solemn assembly once again which is kind of the mandate upon his life um, and he has seen actually he's told me that this one call he has seen more supernatural activity and confirmation than the accumulation of the past 12 years um, it's been amazing. But with that said, you have to know that when you spearhead things on a national and international level the way that he does, um, there's also great difficulty and challenge with it. So let's just pray for him as a corporate body. Lord, we just thank yes. you for Jesus. the prophet that you've raised up in our nation, Lord and Lou Engel. God, we thank you, Lord, for the life of intercession that he has lived before you, Amen. God. Even the example that he is to each one of us, Lord, in provoking us. And God, I thank you, Lord, even beyond his public example that's extraordinary. God, we thank you, Lord, for the, the man that he is in his private vocation. Lord, of um, sowing in the secret place and even um, sowing into Boston yes. and to Cambridge. And just the seed of faith that he even had more than 10 years ago with the call New England of what you would do on the college campuses. So God, this day, God, we lift before you the man that is not only a prophet, but Lord, he's your son. Yes. Lord, he's your beloved one. And God, we are asking today, God, for supernatural encouragement. Yes, we are asking for supernatural confirmation. You, we are asking for supernatural strength in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the divine endorsement of heaven, Lord, upon every one of his words. God, we just even speak, Lord, as he is bringing racial reconciliation and understanding of unity in the body. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, that there would be an anointing of grace 
upon every one of the pastors in the Detroit area. God, we thank you truly for a, a true spirit of unity. Lord, even under the understanding of Joel 2, that we are in a, a nation in crisis, and we desperately need the commanded blessing that comes when brethren dwell together in unity. So God, we ask, Lord, for supernatural breakthrough, Lord, this week, even leading up to the call. Yes, and Lord, we cry out for angelic activity. Lord, the hosts of heaven, Lord, to minister to that man of God and his family. God, strengthen them, Lord, even at this time. Amen. 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 Okay. So for those of you um, that have been here the past couple of weeks, we've actually, and this is going to be our final um, week in the session that we've been doing, um, and actually, for those of you that have been here consistently, you probably could tell us the four pillars. Basically, what we did is after Lou left, um, we said that we just wanted to take a little bit of time to identify to the community that God is building here, what are the four distinct pillars that identify us as a community of people. And not to put anybody on the spot, but <laughs> um, I'll just go through them so that nobody feels uncomfortable. The first week, we went through Matthew 5. And for those of you that have not looked closely at Matthew 5, I strongly encourage you to read Matthew 5. We spent three weeks on it. Um, and basically the reason that that was our first week and the precedence even is that Matthew 5, the understanding that when Jesus came to earth, it was the first message that he ever preached. So obviously it has a great amount of importance and it should have a great amount of emphasis in our lives, Matthew 5. And ultimately, when you look at Matthew 5, it's the constitution of the kingdom. It's Christianity 101. It's how we define our life before God. And one of the things that we had shared that week is that, you know, in American culture, we do have a lot of mega churches. We have a lot of great movements and extraordinary things like that happening. But we have a conviction as a community that the size of the building or even the size of our community does not define success but how we embody and live out Man. Matthew 5. Man, that's good. If, if this is what Jesus says is, is Christianity and how we are to walk, then we don't necessarily look at the outworking. Yes, we want fruits and we want growth and we want momentum, but we want that place of health where we see that we're a people that are wrestling for the integrity and the reality of Matthew 5 Amen. in every area of our life. So I encourage you to look closely at Matthew 5. I mean, it starts right out with um, blessed, um, I'm sorry, I just drew a blank. <laughs> what does it start right out with? Blessed are the poor in spirit. There you go, poor in spirit. We spent a whole week on blessed are the poor in spirit. And the understanding of when we come from the posture of understanding our need for God, Amen. that we are blessed. That is a place of blessing and not despising that place of need. And really, and we're going to actually kind of end up there today. Um, the second part, really everything that he's addressing is the issue of love, brotherly love to one another in the community. It goes through forgiveness. It goes how to deal with offense in your heart. Um, it, it, he goes through really the issues of the heart, not so much the outward circumstance, because he even rebuked the Pharisees. He said, basically, you do it all perfectly, but inwardly, mm. you're defiled and you're unclean. And how he just goes after the place of the heart, and that's where he talks about specifically that in the Old Testament, it was if you murdered, but in the New Testament, it's if you have mm. hatred in your heart. And just that the standard becomes that much greater regarding the issue of love and also righteousness. Um, so I encourage you to look at Matthew 5, and then the next week after that, we actually spent, I think, two to, th yeah, actually three weeks, because this is our sixth week, on House of Prayer. Um, <laughs> and 
not because we are J-Hot Boston and our name is House of Prayer. Really what we distinguish and gave understanding to is that in Luke, when Jesus came into the temple and he declared, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, he was quoting Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, and the understanding that any church, no matter what you call it, a fellowship, a community, a house of prayer, that Jesus declared that our primary identity and our primary vocation is to be that of a house of prayer. So even if you don't call yourself one, you know, down the road years from now, you might launch a, a church or a community and you might not call it a house of prayer, but that is to be the primary identity of you as a people and your primary function because Jesus declared my house shall be called a house of prayer. And for anybody that would like it, I actually can give you a printout. That week we um, took quite a bit of time and we actually went through biblical history starting with the Tabernacle of David. Um, and the understanding that David had, the revelation that David had of 24 hours of worship and prayer that was unbroken, mm. unceasing. Mm. And basically after David, there were six times through Israel's history that different kings and Nehemiah came along at one point, but there was the restoration of night and day prayer. And that basically from the time of David, it was instituted that that was the form of corporate worship, was to minister before the Lord with night and day. And basically we went also through the New Testament to give understanding in the New Testament context, but most of us have all prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the question is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is it in heaven? And we began to look at in Revelations 4. It's a great passage, great chapter that you should look into. Revelations 4, also Isaiah, when he encountered the throne of God. Every single one of these heavenly encounters, John on the Isle of Patmos, when they were brought up and they had a revelation of what was taking place in heaven. Revelations 4 was that they were continually crying, holy, 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 that there's a continual song of worship and adoration in heaven. See, and in our Western mindset, because we don't necessarily understand unbroken worship and unbroken prayer, it then becomes into like a theological discussion, which is good, and we took time to do, of systematically working through the Old Testament and the New Testament of why we do that. But ultimately what it speaks to when we don't understand night and day prayer it speaks to our substandard understanding of the greatness of God. Mm. Because the seraphim and the cherubim, in beholding him, they could not contain themselves. Mm. They could not restrain themselves. It wasn't a matter of even boredom, which is kind of what happens in our sphere and in our society, mm. is that we engage for a time and a period, and then our heart gets <laughs> disengaged almost bored in the place of worship and prayer. But if we're truly beholding him, that is the place of fascination. And I know so many of you have even told me on Saturday nights, that, or any, not just here, but in any prayer service or worship service, that it's almost like you come to a place of worshiping and praying that then when it's kind of like 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and you're supposed to stop, there's something inside of you that kind of goes, this should never stop. <laughs> Like, almost a time, I understand in our, in our flesh and in our humanity, we have to use the potty, we have to sleep, and we have to work. Like, <laughs> I understand not one of us can stand in that place of 24 hours, but it's the understanding that if you ask the cherubim and the seraphim what they saw in heavenly places, would, they ask, would, would we ask them, is he worthy of unceasing night and day worship and prayer? And see, it's a question, and really it's an answer, 
Um, regardless of biblical history, because it's all there, and even regardless of world history, because it's there as well, as far as the raising up in night and day prayer, it all comes down to an issue of his worth. That when we have a revelation of his worth, we understand there should be continual adoration of who he is. We went through really Revelations 4, and that we as a people being created to behold the beauty of holiness. And that place of encountering him, how it completely, how many of you guys can be having the worst attitude, the worst day, all of your emotions are in an uproar, upheaval, confusion, you hate everyone, you hate life, you, I mean, it's just bad. But then all of a sudden you get into that place where you're truly worshiping the Lord, you're encountering him, and it's as if everything within your soul and your spirit comes into order, alignment, and peace. What is that? I mean... There's no antidepressant, there's no happy pill that can do that for you. Where everything comes because it's what you're created for. It's because it's what you were fashioned for, is to behold him, to commune with him, to partake of him, to worship him. And it's the understanding of night and day prayer. Um, Like I said, we can um, print out for you, I have all the scripture references for the six times through Old Testament history. Um, but then we also went through Malachi 1.11 and Isaiah 42, which are, are two really great passages that you could also look at. And it's really the prophecies of the raising up of from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, that the name of the Lord will be praised, Amen. that the name of the Lord will be worshipped. And it says specifically in Malachi 1.11 that every place incense will arise and then the name of the Lord will be made great in the nations of the earth. So we really walked systematically through that. And then also, I'm just going to read to you just because it's so good. And it's one of my favorite passages of scripture. Isaiah 42, 10 through 13. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise to the ends of the earth. It's singing. It's worshiping. It's adoration. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise to the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages of Kadar's inhabitants, let the inhabitants of of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man of war. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, he shall shout aloud, and he shall prevail against all of his enemies. I mean, this is right here is setting a picture. It's not so much like a nice poetic um, metaphor that Isaiah had. He was prophesying that the coastlands and the cities, that all the nations of the earth, that there's a song that's going to erupt, erupt a song of adoration. And it's from that place of continual worship of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that his kingdom is established, that his government is established, and it's ultimately part of his end time plan. Um, So house of prayer is really what we touched on for the past three weeks, and this week, I don't know if you guys, anybody remembers the last two pillars, I'm actually going to try to blow through them quickly, both of them, I don't know if I'm capable of that, but uh, covenantal community and missional community. And this is what we're going to do for covenantal community and missional community. We're going to look first at the book of Acts and the precedence that was set in the book of Acts of what the church is to be. And there we see a covenantal community and we see a missional community. 
And then we're also going to look at history. We're going to look specifically at the lives of Whitfield. We're going to look at the lives of the Revivalists and the Moravians and how we'll see that where there was covenantal community, they became a missional community mm. touching the ends of the earth. Wow. That it was a natural byproduct of a, of a community of love. Um, so if you guys just want to turn with me to Acts 1, 14. We're going to kind of stay in Acts 1, 2, 3, 4 really quickly, and I'm just going to highlight some things to you. Kind of dark over in my corner of the world. And everything's very low, and you could be like five inches shorter. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's easy to see that way. Um, so in 1.14, I mean, I'm sure all of you kind of understand the basics of the book of Acts, but right now you're going to kind of get an overview of the first four chapters. Um, need a seat? There's one right here, babe. <laughs> Come on in. Don't be shy. Hi, Jen. So here we have, um, I'm going to do an overview for you. In um, Acts 1.14, it says, they all continued in one accord in prayer and in supplication. So this is after Jesus had ascended and the command was given, the charge was given to go and to tarry there and until the endowment of power. So tarry, they weren't given like a real specific time frame of how long they were going to be waiting, but go tarry there. So then we find them in one accord. The beauty of the word one accord, you're going to see it a lot through the book of Acts as we're looking at it. One accord. It doesn't mean we all become clones, that we all become mindless and do the same thing, wear the same thing, say the same thing, and sound the same. One accord literally is a picture of if you have a symphony playing together, all different instruments, they all sound the same. I'm sorry, they all sound different, they're distinct in identity, but yet when they play together, they play in one accord and they create a beautiful symphony. And they're playing in unison. So there's distinction and identity, but yet there's that coming together and every joint supplying. And it's because of their distinction that a beautiful sound is made. So when you think of one accord, it's not, because oftentimes we all think, okay, we think, the, we think alike, we act alike. We, it's that place of coming together and even in our distinct giftings, our distinct identities, our uh, distinct views of things that we come together and we find a place of being in one accord so that it can create a beautiful symphony. So it says in 114, they continued one accord in prayer and supplication. And then if you jump down, it actually, um, Acts 2, 1 says, and then when, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord, there's our word again, in one place. Uh, verse 2 says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 3, Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. So you find them in one accord. You find the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then what you find in Acts 2, 14 through 40, you find Peter preaches. So here, let's just look at the model of the church so far. They're not even called Christians yet. This isn't even like the first Christian church instituted. They gather together, they pray. From the place of prayer, the Holy Spirit comes, and then Peter preaches. I wish we had time just to go ahead and read what Peter preached, because I'll just say it was in no way whatsoever very seeker friendly. <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> it was like hardcore, repent, you wicked and perverse generation. It says they were cut 
to the heart. Mm. Can I just say, we desperately need the anointing that was upon Peter's life. It says that from his preaching that 3,000 were added in one day. So you have a community of people that gather together. I mean, the foolishness of prayer. They didn't come with the newest church planting model strategy. They didn't come with all the new techniques of how to get them in the door and then offer them coffee and then a donut. And then if you, I mean, all of the ways of man of how you're supposed to build it, strategize it, structure it. That's good. The foolishness of prayer, the Holy Spirit comes. From that place, Peter stands up and preaches. And let's remember, this is Peter. Come on, Peter. Peter, who denied Jesus. (laughs) I mean, it's amazing. The the most weak and foolish of us, what the Lord will do through us when we'll simply posture our lives in the place of prayer. Then the Holy Spirit can come, and then Peter stands up preaching. And he's used on the day of Pentecost. So 3,000 are added. Uh, in verse 41, verse 42. This is this blows my mind. I don't know how many of you guys have looked very closely at Acts, but I love the next verse that says, and then they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking in bread and prayer. So like, they have this major outbreak of the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches 3,000 are saved, and then they continue steadfastly with the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread and prayer. See, what I've experienced in my American experience, even in my own life, that even, honestly, me, I can, like, go to a conference, be praying, fasting, need a word, I need to minister, I need God to move because I have to preach. And then, like, God moves in great power, what a relief, and, like, the next day I'm waking up, like, exhausted, kind of like, okay, I need a letdown day. But what does that look like, that instead of necessarily God moving in power and you kind of take a chill the next day? And let me just say, I've kind of traveled quite a bit, and that's kind of the, I don't want to say like you're fleshing out nobody's sinning or anything like that, but it's definitely not the whole conference now back on your face desperate for more of God. It's more like, okay, we made it to the conference, God moved, thank God he did, now let's just take a hiatus for a week. Let's just recover. I mean, it doesn't that, let me just be honest. Even like 21-day fast, 40-day fast, because I've been running in the circles long enough for 12 years of doing corporate prayer and fasting, this is what blows my mind. You look in the, the Old Testament. When they call for a national fast and they call for a solemn assembly, everybody, does, everybody doesn't break it at the end going on a complete feast of indulgence of we made it 40 days, thank God we made it, and now let's just go back to vegging in front of the TV, back to our Facebook fascination and indulgence. In Old Testament times, after they had those seasons of seeking the Lord, is actually where they would reinstitute night and day worship and prayer. They would gather together daily. And what they would do is they would take those intensified seasons of prayer and fasting, they would take it as it's now the beginning of a new way. It's now we've repented, we've returned to the Lord. Now all of life has to change. Nothing can go back to usual. And they would reinstitute, six times this happened, reinstitute night and day worship and prayer and continual song of worship and adoration. They changed their culture. And that's even what you see here in Acts, the breakout of the Holy Spirit, and then it says literally the next verse, they continued steadfastly. I think sometimes it's almost like when God does really move in our midst and the Holy Spirit, there's really a breakout of the Holy Spirit. It's almost like in some ways there's a relief of kind of going, okay, it worked, and God moved. 
And so there's almost, in a sense, like a retreating after that, of mm-hmm. kind of going, mm-hmm. instead of recognizing that it's our continual posture to press hard, and that he came in power, and he came in anointing in verse 41, but he still wants to do more. And if you look further, this is like amazing. So you look further and it says that they continued steadfastly. Verse 43, fear came upon every soul. Signs and wonders were done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and they had all things in common. This is where it comes into community life. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods. They divided amongst them all for anyone that had need. Verse 46, and so continuing daily, 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 unbelievable, daily with one accord in the temple, which in the temple was ministering in prayer, in the temple, the breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were saved. So you see this rhythm, which definitely is not the American Western mindset. We all get together on Sunday. I have no idea really what your name is, so please wear a name tag so I can identify you and call you by name. (laughs) You know, and then we all go back to business as usual. We all live our self-consumed, advancing our own comfort and security (laughs) and trying to advance in life, and then we all come back together on Sunday for a good word and to do our religious system. Where when you look at Book of Acts, it was, they were a living, breathing organism, a living, breathing body, and their vocation, yes, they all worked, they all had jobs, but their vocation was, they prayed together daily, they broke bread together daily, and then you find this rhythm, and it doesn't stop here, of you find souls being added mm-hmm. daily. Mm-hmm. Where have I ever heard of a church like that, souls being added daily? Mm-hmm. I mean, I sit with pastors from all over, I sit with campus leaders from all over. And in like the course of a year, it's pretty amazing if people see one or two in this area. Mm-hmm. It's like miraculous. But, you know, I, I, I shared this one of the first few weeks where I was talking about house of prayer, that sometimes we have to wonder if the results that we get are just simply because we don't do it the way that the Lord has prescribed. That if we simply went about things, and I was kind of sharing about how we like to lay hold of a lot of the covenantal promises and declare all the promises, but somehow we don't want to walk out what he sets as covenant relationship. Um, But if you find here, if you skip down to chapter 3, this is where I'm sure you all know the story of Peter and John when they're going to the temple, and they come across the lame man, and they say to the lame man, silver and gold have I none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And the guy rises up and he walks. So then again, we find Peter preaching. (laughs) So they're going to the temple to pray. (laughs) Somebody is miraculously healed. And I love the fact that they say, silver and gold have I none. (laughs) And I'm not criticizing the American church. I am the American church. I'm a part of a compassion ministry, and we feed and we clothe. But I love the fact that instead of simply offering them a hot meal, instead of simply offering them more clothes, I mean, do you realize that by healing this man, beyond filling his tummy for a moment, he was now enabled to go work? He could work and supply for himself the rest of his days instead of sitting as a beggar? I mean, it changed his life forever. And like I said, I'm not underestimating. I'm all about compassion ministry. We will be doing more of it here. I'm all about the practical needs of people, so in no way here that I'm undermining that. But 
we have to have that in the name of Jesus Christ right now. Amen. So then chapter four, it was the first persecution. Many of you guys know they were brought into jail. Most of us think that somehow when revival comes that everything's going to go perfect, perfect. We're all going to be blessed, prosperous. I'll drive my caddy. You'll have your bling bling. And it's all going to look amazing. How about if revival comes and we all get imprisoned? Huh? Like who's preparing us for that gospel? Thank you very much. How about, and I actually addressed this the first week as well. Matthew 5. If that is how we delineate yeah. success, we have to completely, I mean, when you read Matthew 5, when he goes through, blessed are the poor in spirit, in our culture, in our despite, uh, society, we despise poverty. Yeah. Yeah. If anybody looks like they're in need or lack or somehow suffering, oh, your God must have smitten you. You don't have the favor of God on you. you uh, how about maybe, very possibly, if someone's in a place of suffering, that that is the favor of God. Mm-hmm. How about maybe, just maybe, he's aligning every circumstance in their life to fashion them and position them so that they'll draw closer to him. So in his jealous love, hear me, I understand that God blesses. I feel ridiculously blessed. But this is what I'm going to say to you. In hardship and difficulty in my life, I can honestly say I have felt like hardship and difficulty nine times out of ten is not the devil. I have felt like it's been the jealousy of God allowing circumstances so I would be desperate enough to seek him in a, in a, new, in a new way that I've never done before. But I think the thing is with Matthew 5, the reason that it becomes so fundamental for us as a people is even when it talks about, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. I mean, in the culture in which we live, nobody wants to be persecuted for righteousness sake. And especially in the campus environment, if you make a black and a white statement, you have just ostracized yourself, and you, for somehow, you just broke all the political lines of what you're supposed to say and not supposed to say. But how about if you're being persecuted, it's because you're standing for righteousness, and the persecution that's happening to you is not because God has departed, or in any way because you're under the judgment of God. How about that's the favor of God because you've sided with righteousness rather than the opinions of man? I mean, where are those people that care more about being on the side of God than even if it's a religious system and a religious order? That's what you guys have to understand is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the religious order of the day. And hear me, I'm all about, I have good covering, good authority. I got great parental relations, <laughs> not in rebellion. But I do believe, like Jeremiah, it said, it was said to Jeremiah, I have raised you up against kings and priests. I have <laughs> raised you up. And the Lord even spoke to Jeremiah. I, when he said, I raised you up against priests, what he was speaking was that the religious structure of that day was corrupt and defiled. And see, but this is what I want you to hear. The only reason that the Lord could raise up Jeremiah to even speak against priests was because he had such a love for the body of Christ. He was actually raised and trained in the priesthood. So you have to understand, it wasn't out of a rebellious, angry, it was out of sincere love and compassion and a jealous, the heart of God to see the body of Christ, meaning the priesthood and the people of God, be the fullness of what God intended to intended them to be. And in Matthew 5, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were the religious order of that day. I mean, Jesus himself 
was driven out of cities. I love, my little son has the greatest, and I highly recommend, even if you don't have kids, you should totally get it. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it goes through Isaiah in such a, that, remember Isaiah when we were reading it to him the other night? I was like, what are the, I mean, it was so clear to a child. It was, he's going to come as a king, but he won't be in a palace. He's actually going to look like he's a slave to all. He's going to come as a deliverer. I mean, it was everything. You could see so clearly how who Jesus is, it does not look as though the minds of man would perceive or comprehend or even imagine him to come as. He will come as a deliverer, but he's going to be forsaken, abused, abandoned. And like, I mean, they just went through so clearly. I remember reading it to Abram kind of going, if he could get this at a young age, <laughs> you know, that it's not what, you know, our sometimes Western mindset would perceive. Um, let me just... So the first persecution was um, in chapter 4 when they were imprisoned. And literally after he preaches, 5,000 are saved. 5,000 are added to the kingdom after the preaching he's in prison. So he actually preaches to the Sanhedrin when he's released. And then when they go, they report to their brethren in verse 23, kind of everything that took place. <coughs> I love this. So verse 24. to read this to you. So when they had heard, this is after they came back and reported everything that happened with the Sanhedrin. So when they heard, they raised their voice to God with one accord. <laughs> there they are again with one accord. And they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before, before to do. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may preach your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Mm -hmm. So we actually see another outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The place is shaken and another infilling of the Holy Spirit. And that's why oftentimes people sometimes will say, like the book of Joel, the promise and the prophecy of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit when they're like, oh, it took place in Acts. <laughs> God bless you. <laughs> it took place. You know, they point to that one, the first one that took place without looking, that it happened repeatedly. And then you have after this, um, that's chapter 4. And then um, actually in chapter 8, if you skip a, a, a few, I, I want you guys to take time because I really need to like wrap up in the next 10 minutes here. Um, but chapter 8 is the first missionary journey that was, and this is actually why we did Antioch again. The word Antioch again, that it was a center of revival and missionary sending. So when you look at this community of people, we see over and over again that they were gathering together, that they would sell their possessions, and they would give to whoever was in need amongst their community. There was that place of the bond of love and affection that they were committed to one another. 
And you know, I shared the first week when I talked about covenantal community, I was saying how like it's not like in a weird, distorted way, but it's the understanding that we're bound together for a common purpose. For the common purpose, and you know, that first week we were talking about the passion to see the inbreak of God's kingdom in our generation. A passion to see the fullness that's in the heart of God, all that he's intended to see that release. And when you have that kind of a passion, that's the place where the abandonment of life, the confession even of sin, of having accountability, it's because we don't want anything to stand in the way from seeing the inbreak of God in our generation. So that's really where covenant community comes in. Um, but then you see the outworking, like I said, that, I mean, if you look, Paul's preaching perpetually. Like, he cannot restrain himself from preaching. It's the overflow of his experience before God. And that's ultimately what it comes down to. I know with our team, we've done, like, Friday night evangelism night. And for anybody that's been around here any amount of time, you know, sometimes Daryl and Will go into Harvard Square, and they do worship in the square, which is wonderful. And we offer prayer and things like that. But I know I've even sat, sat with young people that come here that are kind of like, well, I'm just not comfortable sharing my faith. And it's just, and, you know, never to be too blunt, but ultimately, if you had had an experience with Jesus, I'm going to say it to you this way. I, I also, I mean, I love people. I would never want to make anybody feel really uncomfortable or awkward or be socially weird in a public environment. But the root, at the very, very root of it, if I'm sitting on the tee and I have an opportunity to talk to somebody, I don't think, oh, to share Jesus might be really offensive and awkward and weird. My view is, I was healed of such tormenting fear that I would be mentally ill right now if Jesus did not come and touch my life as a child. I have so experienced the healing power of God. Mm -hmm. I've so, I mean, even as a young girl, I remember worshiping Jesus and without having the language, I remember coming out from worshiping and saying to my mom, my insides feel clean. I feel like someone washed me inside and I'm sure she thought, kind of send you back. You're only five, you know? But I remember as a kid, you know, like when you're five, I was an angry kid. I don't know about you. I was an angry kid. Like, I used to beat my brother. I used to, you know, kids are nasty. But all I knew is I, at five years old, it's no different than now when I'm 30. I'm feeling the washing, cleansing. Like, I feel clean. I feel light. I feel good. I feel, you know, and at five, I knew that. But all I know is when I'm sitting on the tee, I'm not thinking, oh, I might really offend you and I might really hurt me. I'm thinking, you desperately need Jesus and he could come in and turn your life completely upside down. You will never be the same. And I in no way feel ashamed to tell them about Jesus. If anything, I feel as though if I had an opportunity to share Jesus with them, and what if this was their opportunity? And even if it wasn't, what if I was one to plant the seed? Yeah. So then a few months later, somebody else comes along, and that seed has been watered. But instead, somehow we associate shame with the name of Jesus, and I don't want to... But if honestly, we feel as though it's a gift that has been given to us, and we know what it is to experience the presence of God, why would we not want to tell the world about that experience. I mean, it's kind of like if you are using a really great product, right? <laughs> are you ashamed to tell somebody That's about good. your really That's great good. product? No, absolutely not. But it's in our culture and in our society. And you know, I can't get into this because this is a whole nother topic, but in Nazi Germany, it's proven when you study the work of Adolf Hitler and what happened there, they said that their very, very, very first thing that they did 
to basically desensitize the people um, and prepare them for a Nazi, for communism, is um, <clears throat> they said that they began to make them feel as though their spirituality was a private matter and that they better keep it to themselves. It is not for the public square. I mean, let's just say, obviously in America it's not illegal to share Jesus, and obviously in America, all of that. But what? don't you feel that subtlety that somehow it's a private thing? And when you share it publicly, like even, even at a family gathering, I mean, <laughs> even around aunts and uncles, and you almost feel like, ooh, like, ooh, if you share Jesus, it's offensive, and keep it to yourself. And I mean, that's frightening, because that was literally the very roots of preparing a nation for, for Nazi Germany. That is, that is what began to prepare them to silence. Be silent about your spirituality. Be silent about it's personal. Do not bring it into the public square. When you find Peter, good old Peter, <laughs> I mean, the dude won't shut up. I mean, he's had such an encounter with Jesus. He's been in the place of prayer. From the place of prayer, he's experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and now he cannot keep silence. So 3,000 are added one day, 5,000 the next day, and it literally says that they continued in one accord in the place of prayer, and, and souls were saved daily, daily, because it was that's healthy. That's the model of the church. This is the first church in the New Testament that was instituted, and this is our example. And this is why when I sit with pastors and we kind of get into discussions about like righteousness versus grace and secret sensitive, like all that kind of stuff, and they kind of want to give me all their wisdom on how we should do ministry, I continually just say, the word of God is my standard. The word of God is our standard. Yeah. It does not matter what kind of cultural trends or what worked out west or what worked out east, or if you think that Massachusetts is a liberal environment, so in order for your church to grow, this is what you need to do. The word of God is the standard. And the glorious thing is that when you look at the word of God, literally when it connects night and day prayer with him prevailing against all of his enemies. So this is the way I view it. It is not my job to grow a ministry, not my job to grow a church. Actually, when I started the house of prayer, my goal was to have five people that would like, I, I don't know what to say, <laughs> this was honestly it, that would give their lives and say, give me Boston, give me revival, or lest I die. That's what I was looking for. I was not looking for like a big public, you know, prayer meeting, every Tom, Dick, and Harry coming through the doors, you know. I was saying if I could find five intercessors that would say, give me revival in my generation lest I die, we could see something break over yeah. in Boston. But what happened was you gather those five, and then from that, the Holy Spirit begins, things grow, you know. <laughs> you just can't, like, but... Um, that ultimately was the, and that's really what I believe is, you know, here they are, they're gathered together, they're in one accord, the Holy Spirit comes, and then you actually have the birthing. What we're talking about right here is the birthing of the first Christian church in the New Testament. So this is our model, this is our foundation, this is our example. Um, and this is what we're going after to embody, is the place of the praying community, the covenantal community, that we, we fight for one another. We not we don't fight with one another, which is oftentimes what you find in in not just and I don't want to say Christian circles, any kind of circles, any kind. Of, you get people together and they turn on each other. That's what happens. But we fight for one another. You know, I love Daryl was in a we were at like a multi-pastor, multi-ministry event, and I forget somehow there was like a lot of discussion about like people's ministries and who's growing and all that kind of stuff. And I remember I heard my husband speak up, and I was like. Oh, 
just the wisdom of it. He just looked at all of them and he said, you know what? I pray for all of your success. I pray for your success. Whether that's the church down the street, the ministry down the like, no matter what it is, we're praying for your success and you should be praying for ours. And really, if we take that posture of, as people, you know, you might not agree with everything that I say. I might not agree with everything you say. But it doesn't mean that I'm the one to pass judgment on whether you should fail or succeed in life. If you take the posture and let God deal with it, let him deal with whatever's wrong, whatever error you have, I have. Like, like he cares enough, he'll deal with it, right? He cares more than you do. Um, so just take the posture, even in community, of praying for one another's success. Instead of standing in a place of criticism, instead of standing in a place of judgment. <coughs> so good. <laughs> so good. Okay, really quickly, I'm just going to throw this out there because it's 540 and my husband's going to tell me I went too long. <laughs> but he will. Um, so really, I just want to share this with you, and maybe we'll pick up on it. I'm so trying hard to wrap this up. You're doing great. Go on. Well, the problem is, because covenantal and missional, they're both pretty big. Um, so historically, you guys all know about the Moravians. I'm going to skip that, so I'm going to try to wrap this up really quickly. How many of you guys are familiar? Oxford University was actually where John and Charles Wesley yeah. went to school. How many of you guys are familiar with the Holy Club? Yeah. This is phenomenal. So you have Oxford University, right? And literally these men are being trained to be ministers of the gospel. They're being prepared to be preachers of the word. So you have John and Charles Wesley. They start something called the Holy Club, which the reason I bring up the Holy Club is to say it is a covenantal community. It was a group of young men that were bound together for their passion for Jesus and they were desperately longing for more of them. Well, the crazy thing is, I won't get into reading kind of all the quotes that I have, but pretty much everything you read about the Holy Club is it goes through the description of how all the other students had such mocking names for them. This is Christian school, right? Like, they're all being prepared. <laughs> but they all have mocking names for, for this Holy Club. They call them moths, because kind of like moths feed on cloth, is these guys fed on the word that intensely. They just mocked them incessantly. And then if you read the accounts of it, it actually talks about how they could not even go to like the lunch or the dinner or anything like that without being ostracized, without being condemned, without being ridiculed, without being judged. But it was this small band of young men. And I'm actually going to read to you. This is what, this is, and hear me. Some of you in this room that don't know me, when I read this, they're going to be like, oh my Lord, she's a legalist. She wants us to follow a list of rules. By no stretch of the imagination am I looking for any of us to live by these, but this is what I want to say. I want to read these things, and this is what I want you guys to hear. These young men used to, every single night, read through this list of 22 questions, and it's how they evaluated their day. But what I also want you to know is this very small group in Oxford University that was a, a covenantal community that were so devout, they gathered together daily to pray. Actually, I should. It says these earnest young men caused a sensation at Oxford by frequently meeting together for Bible study, communion, and prayer. They, um, they were, it goes through what I was saying, they were referred to as the, the Holy Club, Bible Moths, uh, the Methodists, because they, for, they followed such me methods and methodology. Um, I'm going to scroll down. But what I want you guys to understand is that out of this club, one of the members of this club was George Whitfield, who not only shook England, 
He shook New England. I mean, he was used mightily here. And actually, what was said of George Whitfield is his voice startled England like a trumpet blast. So here's this young guy out of Oxford University. He's a part of, he was poor. He was actually considered like a servant at the school. Like John and Charles Wesley, were, they couldn't even like, he couldn't approach them to even ask if he could be a part of the Holy Club because he was kind of like there to serve the richer students. He had a terrible life of hardship and difficulty, George Whitfield did. But they found out about him and it says they found out about his devotion to God. So they went to him and said, would you like to be a part of the Holy Club? So here you have, George Whitfield, who comes on the scene in England, and his voice startles England like a trumpet blast. That's what I'm praying. I am praying that even out of this community, this fellowship of people, that there would come voices that would even startle America like a trumpet blast. See, we need voices with that kind of strength, that kind of clarity, and that kind of conviction. We need the model of the book of Acts, where we bring ourselves in in the place of prayer, we bring ourselves low of saying, God, we do not want anything that the hand of man could bring to pass. We've seen it politically, we've seen it spiritually, we've seen what man can do. And at this point, we're in utter crisis. What we need is those like the book of Acts that will gather together in the place of prayer, seeking the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and from that comes the spontaneous preaching of the word, and they continued together daily, and souls were added, added daily. Charles Spurgeon actually said of Whitfield, he said, you guys know Charles Spurgeon, I mean, a phenomenal man of God. He said, often as I have read the life account of George Whitfield, I am conscious of the distinct quickening whenever I turn to his life reading. He lived. Other men seem to only, only live, I'm sorry, only be half alive. But Whitfield was all life. He was all fire. He was all wind. He was all force. My own model, if I may have such a thing, is, is to do, do justly to my Lord, is to live as George Whitfield to be at unequal footsteps, but I must follow his glorious track. But this is what I want to say. The markings of what even formed John, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, this is actually these young men. This is how they gave an account before one another and before God. And I just want us to take a minute. I'm going to read through them really quickly. Number one, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am a better person than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Two, am I honest in all my acts and words, and do I exaggerate? They, they would read through these every night, just basically before the Lord, to be able to examine their hearts and have a time of repentance. Um, three, do I confidently pass on what was? Oh, do I confidently pass on what was told to me in confidence? So if somebody says in confidence, I'm sharing with you, and then you pass on to somebody else in confidence. I'm sharing with you what so and so said. Four. Can I be trusted? Five, am I a slave to dress, friends, work, or habit? Six, am I self-conscious, self-pity, or self-justifying? Seven, did the Bible live in me today? Eight, do I give God time to speak to me every day? Wow. Nine, am I enjoying prayer? That's a good question. <laughs> Am I enjoying prayer? 10, 
When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? 11. Do I pray about the money I spend? 12. Do I get to bed on time and get up on time? 13. Do I disobey God in anything? 14. Do I insist on doing something in which my conscience is uneasy? 15. Am I defeated in any part of my life? 16. Am I jealous? impure, irrational, touchy, or distrustful. 17, how do I spend my spare time? 18, am I proud? 19, do I thank God that I am not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who, who despise the politician? 20, is there anyone I fear, dislike, criticize, or resent? If so, what am I doing to improve the matter? Mm -hmm. 21, do I grumble and com complain? 22, is Christ real to me today? I mean, I think any one of those questions are provoking in and of themselves. And I want to be very, very clear because in no way do I endorse um, self-condemnation or like an, an analytical type of like, get, you know, just like have a self-bashing session of missing the mark on the... But all I know is the true conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life has actually brought strength Amen. to rise and seek him more. <coughs> the true conviction of the Holy Spirit has not disabled or crippled me. Mm -hmm. It's actually empowered and strengthened me. Yeah. And I read these not in any way to say, you know, kind of say these things to yourself and then totally bash yourself because you're such a loser. <laughs> I say for all of us that to use them as a place of I mean, to be that thoughtful at the end of the day, of being able to look upon your day and, and simply saying, I know for me, I, the, one of those questions for, for some reason the past few months, I personally, I don't know why, but how do I spend my spare time? Because when I was first newly saved, I mean, I definitely will like, if my son's like having a hard time going to sleep, like I'll look at like home decorating online. <laughs> like I'm just like, oh, I'm getting ideas for my living room, which is fine, no sin. I don't think I'm being condemned or judged or anything like that. But all I can say is that in the days of my youth, I would use every spare moment I had in the reading of the study of the word. I mean, I didn't even read normal teenage magazines, not because there's anything wrong with them. I just, I took it like where Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. I took that very seriously in my youth of just saying, all things are lawful. I can do that. It's permissible. But is it profitable? Is it bringing the revelation of Christ into an increased measure in my life? Is it? And that's the thing sometimes, you know, is it a big deal? Like a TV show here? No, no, no. Are those, are those things not at all? But when things become habit forming, which that's usually the case, usually if there's like a certain magazine that you like to flip through, like you find yourself buying it every week, and then you're using your... 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there, 10 minutes here, which over the course of a week becomes an hour, two hours. It's that place of being a wise steward of our time because ultimately when he said, even that question, he said, is there any place in my life that I don't have victory? Oftentimes those places where we're suffering in defeat and in despair, it really comes back to the meditations of our heart, being watchful of what we meditate on our heart, our mind, our spare time, how we use our time and what we're cultivating, those very simple things, it's like the principle of sowing in everything. I'm going to wrap this up 
But what I want to say is, and if, to go on, if you look at the story of Whitfield's life, that man preached. They actually say that in the course of a year, that his average preaching was something between like 800 sermons a year, which if you think about it this way, there's 365 days in a year. I mean, that's more than preaching every day. That's preaching multiple times a day. And they've actually said that the fields, you have to understand Whitfield, he was rejected from the local church. He didn't go out to fields to preach because it was like the new trend and the fad and the idea. He went out to fields to preach because no one would open their doors to him. He was rejected from the church. So he thought, okay, if I can't, if I'm not accepting the church, I'm just going to go out to the highways and the byways. And it's estimated that some 20,000 people would gather to hear him preach in fields. This is George Whitfield. But you find that this man who basically was cultivated in this, this community setting of accountability, of spurring one another on in the faith, that he became one of the greatest preachers of the gospel, pre like Paul, preaching. He was compelled to preach Christ. And at the end of the day, we don't necessarily want to gather a community of people so that we can grow a church, have numbers, get a bigger building, and all sit around and compliment each other every Sunday. Hey, hair looks nice. Oh, I got a new shirt. It's awesome. What we're here and what we're envisioned to do is have a covenantal community of those that we're here to spur one another on in the faith. And from that, we do want to see a missional community that we are compelled to preach Christ. It's not just necessarily because we have an evangelistic event on the, on the calendar, so we're all going to be prepared because in two months from now, we're going to go preach Jesus. But we want to see those that are empowered and those that are impassioned to preach Christ out of the overflow of relationship. Why don't we just stand to our feet? I just want us to take a minute, and even like we were reading through that list of the questions that they asked themselves, I want us just to respond to the Lord in our own hearts, because I know me more and more and more. Most of you know I've had a major life transition. I went from being single for a very long time, devoting my life to the house of prayer, being in this actual room like 12 hours a day and now with the demands of life of a marriage of a baby of a new house that we just bought which I'm completely blessed and it's the kindness of God but all of those things added I find myself more and more saying God I do not want to seek a life of security and self-preservation I don't want to be one that gives my time and my attention for somehow building security for my little three and my family and what we can become. But I continually want to say, God, I want a life of abandonment before you, a life of utter abandonment. I don't want at the end of my days to look at what I accumulated for self, but I want to be able to look upon a life that was completely poured out, completely abandoned.
this week, Father, we ask, Lord, let the presence of the Almighty rest upon us, God, that we might be obedient to live out our lives, God, as you call and as you ordain us to, God, day by day. Father, increase the burning flame of Christ on this side. The appetite, God, within us for more of you. Jesus, we ask in your mighty name. of this is God doesn't want necessarily, you know, uh, people who can just make good music, uh, people who can preach good sermons. He doesn't ask for that. Although that will come out of what he asks us to do. What he asks us to do is, and what he calls us to is a lifestyle of prayer. Amen. Certainly, even through the words of Jesus, that's the one hallmark of what Christ called the body, of, uh, the body to. Is a, is, a, is a vibrant lifestyle of prayer. And that's what we're here tonight. And all those other things like good music, good preaching, they come from out of the overflow of young men, young women, adults, just living life in the house of prayer together. Amen. Listen, be blessed. If you need prayer tonight, please don't leave without getting some prayer. We're going to conclude here. Um, thank you for coming. Forward. If you want to get, uh, you know, if even my communication wasn't very clear in terms of our scheduling, you can go right to jhotboston.com. It's all mapped out. All our prayer sets are there for you to see. Be blessed and be encouraged and feel free to hang out for as long as you want. Amen. We love you guys. We look forward to seeing you this week. Amen. Oh, you know what? One last thing. Speaking of community, Noah and Nate <coughs> had their baby two days ago. Um, and so anybody that would be willing, I'm trying to coordinate meals. As you guys know, they have little ones. They have a three-year-old and a two-year-old, or yeah, and then a newborn. Um, so her mom is here until Wednesday, and so Thursday I do have a meal for them coming. But for the next week, I would really like to provide meals for them to be a blessing to them. So if anybody is willing to cook a meal, um, let me know. And even if you can't, if you for some reason you can't, they live about 15 minutes north of here. If you can't bring it, I can coordinate getting it there because either Daryl or I. be blessed. We love you, right? And certainly don't leave. If you need some prayer, I will for whatever, whatever it might be, uh, please uh, get with one of us and we'll pray with you. Amen? Be blessed.